KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio in depth. I'm Charlotte Reese. I think, especially if you live in Philadelphia or work here, it's easy to forget how much has happened in this city. We know about the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, but one thing I didn't actually know until a few weeks ago the first computer was built in Philadelphia. It's called the ENIAC. It took people at the University of Pennsylvania three years to design it and put it together. It's as big as a warehouse, and it's about to celebrate its 75th birthday. Dr. Brian Stewart is a professor of computer science at Drexel University, and he's part of the group helping throw a birthday party for the world's oldest computer. First of all, I had no idea that the first computer was built here in Philadelphia. And it's also incredible that it was only 75 years ago. I mean, I know so many people that just bought stocks on their phone and it wasn't even a thought, you know? So, I mean, let, but let's start back in the 1940s, right? Like, what was going on at that time that made someone want to build a computer? Who were kind of the characters here? It turns out there are, at this point in time, a lot of different people who are all kind of coming to the same sense that the kind of computations that we need to do, the act of doing them by hand is just too much drudgery, and we really need a machine to do it faster. We didn't know at the time, but later we found out there was someone in Germany who was working on this sort of stuff. There was someone at Harvard working on this stuff. Bell Labs had people working on these kinds of things. On the ENIAC, the starting point really begins with a gentleman named John Malkley. He had graduated from Johns Hopkins University and was teaching at Ursinus College. And he had a lot of interest in some of the things that are very difficult to compute, like weather, for example, and had begun sort of experimenting around with ways of building things to do computing. Many of the people involved recognized that if you could do it with vacuum tubes as opposed to rotating gears or relays, that would be faster. An opportunity arises where he can take a course one summer at the University of Pennsylvania in electronic circuits with vacuum tubes. In this course, the lab instructor is a young man named J. Presper Eckert. Everybody calls him Press Eckert. Malkley and Eckert began to kind of brainstorm. Eckert said, yes, that's very doable. That can actually be built. Fast forward a couple of years into World War II. The U.S. government, of course, needs a substantial amount of calculation to be done for various war-related purposes. Most of the young men who have recently been studying mathematics are off in the front. So they have a relatively small pool to hire from in the young women who've been studying mathematics recently. And there are at least a couple of major efforts that are kind of in competition with each other for hiring the people that they can get. One is code breaking, and the other is calculating artillery trajectories. When you're out in the field and you've got one of these big guns and you need to figure out how to aim it to hit a target that's you know three, four, five miles away, Basically, what you have is a book of tables, and you look up in the table how to set the elevation of the gun. But all the information in those tables has to be calculated ahead of time. And at this time, it was all done by hand. 
In fact, the job title of the people who did the calculating by hand was computer. Now, the Army had two major locations where they had people doing these calculations. One was in Aberdeen, Maryland. The other was at the University of Pennsylvania. They had a machine called a differential analyzer, what we sometimes call an analog computer, that they used as part of that work. And a lot was done by hand with desk calculators. So by this time, you've got Mockley has moved from Ursinus to Penn. Eckert and Mockley are at Penn thinking about building a machine to do calculations. They see these people doing endless hand calculating. And so Mockley writes a proposal for the Army. I think we can build a machine that will do this work much faster. In 1943, the Army let the contract for what would become the ENIAC. And the University of Pennsylvania began a research program to develop this machine. In some sense, you can almost think of the machine as a very large number of desk calculators all connected together in such a way that one calculator can pass its numbers onto the next. And by controlling which ones pass on the numbers to which other ones and in what sequence they do it, that determines what calculation you're doing. And that was kind of the mental image of how this machine would work. By late 1943, Eckerd and Mockley as well as some engineers that were working with them, had built what was known as a two-accumulator prototype. Now, the accumulators in the machine are basically like those adding machines. So they had built a prototype to kind of prove the concept. And at that point, then, it became largely a construction project. They kind of assembled a fairly large team that continued developing this machine. At the same time, by early 1944, they're already starting to think about their next machine. As Eckert put it in a later interview, they were dissatisfied with pretty much everything they had done on the first one and had better ways that they had thought of to do it. So they were beginning to work on their second machine. The construction of the machine continued through 1944 and well into 1945. And it wasn't ready to really do real work until late 1945, after the war was over. So it turns out that the machine didn't end up being used for the war, even though war needs were what funded it. However, in 1945, in the winter of 45, that's when it got used for its first major real-world work. And the work that it did turns out to have been work for Los Alamos and nuclear weapons development. Now, of course, it was top secret at the time, and so nobody at Penn knew exactly what these calculations were doing. They had a couple of people from Los Alamos come out here to Philadelphia, put their calculations on the machine, run it, get the data, and then they left. So since the war was over, the machine was now working, the Army decided to publicize it, to make it public. And that's what we're about to celebrate, is the 75th anniversary of that public unveiling of the machine in uh, February of 1946. Can you kind of explain what the ENIAC looked like and what it started to be able to do or what it could do once it became public? So the machine itself, imagine a room where you've got walls that are 32 feet long by 16 feet long. And the ENIAC is those walls, effectively. In reality, it was within a slightly larger room, and these were racks. But if you kind of stepped into the working area of the machine, 
it felt like the machine was the walls of a room. It was a U-shape, three sides of it. And along those walls were a total of 40 racks of electronics, each rack being two feet wide by about eight feet tall. About 20 of them were those accumulators that I talked about. There were other racks that had specialized functions, like there was a three-rack set that formed the multiplier. There was a rack that handled division and square roots. There were racks that handled the reading of data off of function tables. Now, these were big arrays of switches on wheels. You could move them around the room, and you could dial in the values of, say, a sine or a cosine or logarithm-type function, or the nature of atmospheric drag on an artillery shell. You could dial in the drag function. And so you had, as I said, a total of 40 of these racks in the room. Each one of those had a panel on the front of it that had some number of switches that would allow you to select things like, is this particular unit going to be receiving a number at this point in time, or is it going to be transmitting a number at this point in time? And then there were also patch cords that would run from units, from these rack units, into trunks that would carry signals all the way around the room. So you could end up with you know, a signal that could travel nearly 80 feet. And that's how the whole machine was configured. You walked in with a diagram that said how all of the cables are to be plugged in and how all the switches are to be set. And that's how you programmed it. As for what it could do, sort of the first step in publicizing it is talking about its speed. It was much faster than anything that had come before it. It could do 5,000 additions per second. Even that is a little bit simplifying matters because every five thousandths of a second it could actually do multiple additions, but it's kind of an easy number to quote to say it does 5,000 additions a second, and about 500 multiplications a second. And that was hundreds to nearly a thousand times faster than pretty much anything else. Another aspect of the machine that was quite unique was it was designed to be general purpose. Even though their motivation was artillery shells, the knowledge was that this was going to be used for a wide variety of purposes, and we want it to be as general as possible. What wasn't completely understood at the time, but it wasn't understood just how unique it was and how fundamental it was in a theoretical sense, it was recognized that it would be very important for the machine to be able to do things conditionally. So imagine if you're trying to simulate a bouncing ball. While the ball's in the air, you've got one set of equations that are describing the motion of it. But the moment it touches the ground, you've got an entirely different set of equations that are describing what it's doing. And you can't really predict ahead of time exactly when that's going to occur. So you have to have something that looks at the current altitude of the ball, and as soon as that becomes zero, then it kicks into a different kind of computation. And then after that gets done, it goes back to the computation in the air. The ENIAC had that capability. And that was something that really none of its contemporaries had. What we've now understood, putting it together with earlier theoretical work, is that that characteristic, the ability to do something conditionally, along with being able to repeat things, is really the core functionality that has to be there for a machine to be universal. So the ENIAC really kind of set the stage for everything. It's really where we as humanity learned how to build and program computers.
Now we have computers in all of our pockets. It's just, it's amazing to think the process that this went through. And you mentioned that the um, creators of the ENIAC were already working on their next project before the ENIAC was even finished. They kind of opened up this whole new world. What were they thinking would be the next step? The big next step, well, I guess the best way to describe is to go back a little bit and talk about one of the limitations of the ENIAC. The ENIAC has very, very little of what we think of today as memory. You get basically those 20 accumulators, and that's really about all that you've got in terms of being able to store information. The developers originally recognized that more memory would be useful, but they didn't have a good way of actually building such a thing. So one of the first things that they were looking at is how can we add more memory to the machine? Eckert, it turns out, also had done some work related to radar during the war. And in connection with radar, he had developed some devices that could serve as memory in a computer. By early 1944, they're starting to think in terms of what kind of memory devices could we put on the machine to give it more capabilities, and then realizing that this act of plugging in cables and setting switches is very cumbersome. And if we could store the information about the computation in the same memory that we store the data we're manipulating, this would make the machine far more convenient to use. This is the concept that we today know as the stored program. Their next project that was called EDVAC was a stored program computer. Interestingly, there was a bit of a, uh, an issue that arose at the university with respect to patent rights. Eckerd and Malkley left the university before the EDVAC project was done and they started their own company. And that company ultimately is now part of Unisys. It was there that they built the first commercial computer in the United States, the UNIVAC. I think that's so interesting because, I mean, technology progresses so fast today. And to think that even back then they were thinking about memory, how long did the ENIAC kind of stay at the top of its game? What were some of like the main functions of it or maybe the coolest things that it could do before this commercial computer came out? So there's a lot of things that happen and are kind of overlapping during these few years, from 1946 into the early 50s. In uh, the summer of 1946, the Moore School at Pennsylvania holds a kind of summer school, they call it. They've essentially invited people from all over who are starting to work on computational machines of one form or another, and they invited them to all come where the people who had been working on this EDVAC-style of system could really educate everybody about how all this worked. In 1945, a little paper had kind of found its way distributed out in in the world. It was written by John von Neumann, one of the top mathematicians of the day, heavily involved consulting with the U.S. government on a lot of things during the war, including the Manhattan Project. He found out about the ENIAC in the summer of 44 and began working with the group in late summer, early fall of 44, when they're planning their next machine. And he writes up this little, what he calls his first draft of a report. 
it ended up being, you know, 20 or 30 copies of it got mimeographed and sent around. And that kind of sparked all of these other groups who were looking at computation to realize, hey, this stored program idea is really the key in the, the direction we want to go. And so a lot of them came to Penn in the summer of 46 to learn about this stuff. And then they went out from there and started all these computer projects. When we get to 1948, this is where the beginnings of those projects are starting to happen, or when they're starting to show some results. Interestingly, the ENIAC is still at the heart of that, because they realized that if the ENIAC, in terms of rewiring, is so general that you can solve any problem on it, you could solve the problem of making the ENIAC look like one of those stored program machines to some approximation. And that's exactly what they did. So you have a kind of nucleus both in the northeast of the U.S. and in England starting to build these machines that have these characteristics that had only been imagined before. And they were all kind of coming online right around the same time. And so you've got this entire kind of community building up where the whole field of computer science is just kind of being born. One of the government agencies that was kind of interested in this and always, you know, there to buy one of whatever was being made was the Army. So the ENIAC had been moved to Aberdeen. It was operating there, and it kept being joined by new machines until finally in uh, 1955, all of the other new machines that were there, it kind of got to where nobody was using the ENIAC much anymore. And so it got retired in 55. I like how you say that the ENIAC was still at the heart of a lot of these inventions, too. And I think that brings us to the big birthday that's coming up. And you're a part of the celebration. What does everyone kind of need to know about what's happening and how people can be a part of this? Let me put that off for just a moment because you said something that reminded me of something else that I wanted to kind of highlight here. And that is, being at the heart of things wasn't just a matter of the machines that were being built. It also had to do with learning how to use them. This was something very new, and nobody really knew how we would go about using these kinds of machines. There's a whole another story that goes along with this that has been documented in the form of a small short documentary under the auspices of an organization called the ENIAC Programmers Project. And it's largely led by Kathy Kleiman. And what she discovered was that when they first were saying, okay, now we're about to get this machine finished, we've got to figure out you know, who's going to operate it and how are they going to use it and so on. Because, of course, part of the motivation were these ballistics calculations. They picked six of the human computers who had been doing ballistics calculations and assigned them to the ENIAC. So these six women became the first programmers of the ENIAC. What they didn't really anticipate, but quickly learned, was that the process of putting a problem onto the machine, of figuring out how to organize the problem in such a way that the machine can solve it, was itself a significant activity, and is what we think of as programming today. And once you've got something that you're programming, you've got to find the mistakes in it, the bugs. And so these six pioneers really, in many ways, set the groundwork for all of the programming and techniques that came along after. This nucleus of 
programming and kind of learning how to put problems on the machine, how to diagnose mistakes in the programming and so on. That's kind of the part of it where I say we learn not only how to build computers with the ENIAC, but how to program them. Now, coming back to your question about the events coming up, the main events are going to be on Monday the 15th. That is the 75th anniversary day of the unveiling. Both the University of Pennsylvania and the group I'm involved with will be doing presentations of various sorts. Pennsylvania is uh, running a, a sort of mini symposium that will be running in two sessions starting at 10.30 in the morning, and the plan is that they'll finish up about 3.30 in the afternoon. Then at 3.30 in the afternoon, Unisys will do a web broadcast that we've put together about the ENIAC. This is going to include clips of interviews with the original developers of the machine. It will include three panel discussions. One I'm involved with that is discussing the impact of ENIAC on computing today. Another one I'm also involved with is focused on the ENIAC programmers. And then there's a third panel focusing on technology in the Philadelphia area. Because it's all largely video, and there's not really good opportunity within that structure for people to ask questions and, and discuss things, on the 18th, we're going to be hosting a, uh, a kind of roundtable type of discussion affiliated with the University City Science Center. People will be able to come and ask any questions that occurred to them while they were watching the videos and dig a little deeper into everything that's gone on since then. Really kind of right here where it all happened. Right. That sounds great. And I mean, even as you said, the ENIAC just 75 years ago, that was kind of the birth of computer science. You yourself are a computer scientist. And you mentioned about the panel that you'll be leading. But I mean, it, how interesting is it to just kind of like trace a line from where the computer started to kind of where the field is at today? Oh, it, it is absolutely fascinating. When I talk about history to my students, I often talk in terms of the history is like a complex tapestry with threads going in every direction, touching each other. And any one thread you look at, it's just amazing how many points it hits. A good example of that from the ENIAC is one of the engineers who worked on the ENIAC by the name of Harry Husky. He designed certain components of it at Penn, he was involved with writing some of the major documentation of it uh, as it was finished. After the war, he went on sabbatical for a year to England, where he worked at the National Physical Laboratory. Now, the National Physical Laboratory is also where Alan Turing went after Bletchley Park. And Turing was kind of initiating a computer project at NPL. Now, by the time Husky gets there, Turing is starting to become dissatisfied with what's going on at NPL, and he's beginning to look at, at going somewhere else and ends up at Manchester. But Husky continues to work on this project and actually is pushing to build a small version of the machine that ultimately eventually did get built and is known as the Pilot Ace. And that machine is currently in the Science Museum in London. Well, Husky came back to the U.S., he led a computer development project on the West Coast for the National Bureau of Standards. He then designed a machine for Bendix Corporation. And interestingly, the machine he designed for Bendix Corporation 
is the very first computer that my undergraduate institution ever had. Then Husky went on to join the faculty at the University of California at Berkeley, where one of his PhD students was a fellow by the name of Nicholas Viert. And Viert went on to develop a number of important programming languages, such as Pascal, Modula, operating system called Oberon, and a number of other major accomplishments. One of Husky's master's students at Berkeley was a fellow by the name of Ken Thompson. And after getting his master's at Berkeley, Ken came out to New Jersey to work for Bell Laboratories and was just recently made a fellow of the ACM for his work in developing the operating system Unix. And the ACM that I just mentioned, the Association for Computing Machinery, that's kind of the professional society of computer science, it was formed right in this area in 1947 because of all the computing activity that was going on. And I believe it was first president of it was John Malkley, who had kind of initiated the NAIAC project. So the pieces tie together all over the place, and it's absolutely fascinating. Well, and it's really connected to this area. That's very cool. Yeah, it is. There's another piece of this. It really kind of connects to how I, oh, part of why I'm so interested in the history of the field. When I was a freshman in college, a group of us went to a conference that was held in Chicago. And that was in 1981. Part of the conference activities that year were a celebration of the 30th anniversary of the introduction of the UNIVAC one. And there were a number of the early pioneers who gave talks and, and that sort of thing. So that kind of exposure, I didn't really know much of the history at that point, but it kind of sparked a little bit of interest. And then some years later, I realized that it had been more than 30 years since that conference, <laughs> which meant I had been in computer science for over half the time there's been computer science. <laughs> That was a little sobering, but it's also kind of exciting in some ways that you know, I've been able to be a part of and see the field over so much of its history. Yeah, definitely. Not many professions can say that. Yeah, I mean, you know, when you think about, well, you know, if you're teaching students calculus, you're teaching them stuff that was first talked about about 400 years ago. And here we're talking about stuff that the early pioneers, some of them were still alive up until quite recently. Husky, for example, passed away just a couple of years ago at the age of 101. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the radio.com app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Charlotte Reese, and we'll have another episode out soon.